Bible says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Our, our message for this afternoon is entitled, The Flight of the Youth. The Flight of the Youth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study a word. I, once again, Lord, I just pray that you make me a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard today, Lord. Instead, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to jump to the book of Luke, chapter 15. Luke, chapter 15. And starting at verse 11, the Bible says, And he said, Jesus is speaking now, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto him, unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. We're all familiar with this uh, parable. It's probably the most famous of all of Christ's parables. It starts with a man with two sons. And the younger son says to his father, listen, I'm okay. I do not want to live here anymore. Give me what is coming to me when you die so I can move on. Now, in the Jewish um, uh, culture at the time, for a son to do this would have been tantamount to saying to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead already. The father takes what he has and splits it, and the younger son would have gotten one-third, the older son would have gotten two-third, the way that the Jewish system worked back then, and he took his money, and the Bible says that not many days after, this younger son gathers everything he has together, packs up his stuff, and he takes his journey into the, what the Bible calls a far country. And the Bible then says he wasted his substance on riotous living. Before we get into the, into, the, into the depth of this message, two things I want to point out from that last statement. Number one, the Bible says he goes into a far country. He wanted to get as far away from the, from the, <laughs> the, the protection and the, and the rules of his father as possible. So the Bible uses that word far on purpose. It symbolizes what happens when we are in rebellion against our heavenly father. When we are asking for our inheritance. You see, God has good things planned for us for eternity, but it is the foolish sinner who says to God, I don't want what you really have for me. Give me what I want in this life and I won't worry about the next one. And I want to submit to you that the far country isn't really that far. We talked about it this week. You see, the far country is on your cell phone. 
It's in the playlist on your Spotify or whatever music program you use. The far country is on the, on the, on the, on the pornographic websites that some of us still visit. The far country is the fact that we are engaging in sexual behavior that is not becoming of a Christian. The far country doesn't mean you have to leave your dorm room. You can be in your dorm room and in the far country at the same time. Then the Bible says, listen, when he gets to the far country, he spends his substance uh, with riotous living. Huh. Let me tell you something. The name of this message is called the flight of the youth because what we are watching in Christian nations is that young people are flying away from the church. We are watching an unprecedented exodus of young people. And I'm going to use some statistics from the United States, but I did find an article from one of the Jamaican uh, publications to show that the phenomena has washed ashore here in Jamaica. People in Jamaica tell me that when they were, a lot of people tell me when they were growing up, I think our driver told us this, that when they would, even if the parents a generation ago, even if the parents didn't go to church and they weren't Christians, they would still pack up their children and make them go to church. It's actually not the best formula for parenting, but it meant that more Jamaicans were exposed to Christianity. And now let me say something. Let me say something clear because I know everybody, this is an Adventist institution. I know everyone here is not an Adventist. I'm speaking about Christendom in general right now. There is a rush to get away from the basic fundamental principles of the Christian faith. Watch this. So this one here is uh, most, teenagers drop, most teenagers drop out of church when they become young adults. And here's the question that was posed in this, in this study. Did you stop attending church regularly twice a month or more for at least a year between the ages of 18 and 22? And you can see uh, as you look at it, um, the numbers here aren't very good. You see a large percentage, whether in 2007 or 2017, did. Here's what this article actually says. It says, from the study, the dropout rate for young adults accelerates with age, the study found. While 69% say they were attending at age 17, that fell to 58% at age 18 and 40% at age 19. Once young people reach their 20s, Around one in three say they were attending church regularly. It drops to about 33%. Now, I said that's, that can't be happening in Jamaica. Um, and here's, this, is what, this is to show you that 70% of young adults drop out of church. So I got this one, The Star, and I don't, I don't know much about this, this, this publication, so I'm, I'm using it. It says here, this is an article from a Jamaican paper. It says, young people avoiding church. What is happening? And there's a lot of effects. I talked about it all week. The media, schools, you go to schools and they teach you evolution. Well, if, if, if you evolve and that's what is scientific fact, then what is the purpose of going to church? Right? God didn't create you anyway. If he didn't create you, how can he recreate you? And so all of a sudden people start dropping out. I want to show you a study from the U.S. that kind of brings this home. Um... This is from the book, Generation Change, Why Our Youth Leave. I won't go through all of the different things he talks about, but I want you to look at number two. I highlighted it. Look at what it says. Teenagers and 20-somethings, experience of Christianity is shallow. This is from a study, American study. 
They say church is irrelevant to their daily lives. That there isn't, look at this, that there isn't enough in-depth study of the Bible and a real in-depth relationship or experience with God. Did you get that? The young people, when they poll these American young people, they say the reason we, one of the reasons we don't come back to church is because when we were in church, the church did not teach us the Bible. I was a youth pastor in Southern California for many years. And what I noticed in the youth ministry culture is that what we think we can do is entertain young people into staying in the church. Oh man, we would have, and, it was, and, and, and worse, it was California. They would have concerts with hip hop, Christian hip hop rap artists coming in. They would have pizza parties all the time and billiards, tournaments, and all kinds of stuff. And we did a lot of basketball. But guess what? None of that can hold young people in the church. When you leave here, especially when you leave high school and go to college in America, but when you leave the Christian institution or leave your home, if you do not understand why you believe what you believe, you are in trouble. And yet in our churches, and I don't know what it's like in Jamaica, so I'm not talking about Jamaica directly. I'm talking about America now. In our churches, you could sit in our pulpits for 365 days. You could listen for 52 sermons on 52 Sabbaths and never hear a word of prophecy. Never hear a word of deeper truth. No present truth whatsoever. You might hear a whole lot of shenanigans, a whole lot of prosperity preaching, a whole lot of it's going to be better. Just trust and God will give you what you want. But no one is preaching. God is expecting us to be broken on the rock, to have our characters transformed and to become more like Jesus. Watch this. One of the other big things, there's two things I'm going to point out real quick. Here is that number four on the list of why the young people leave the church is around sex and sexuality. They say young Christian church experiences related to sexuality are often simplistic or judgmental. The modes of teaching that the church uses are not relevant, look at this, to the sexual exposure and education young people have outside of the church. I hope you got that. The reason, some, listen, somebody asked me, why you preach that sermon on sex and sexuality the other night? It was, too, it was too tough. It was too strong. Let me tell you something. If you think you're going to survive in a world where you listen to every song you listen to, every TV show you watch is promoting a rebellion against the law of God, if you think you're going to listen to that all the time and be okay with God, you're not. Somebody's got to stand up and say, this is what the word of God says. We have got to stand up and say, this is it. That's why I've made sure in that message, I've made sure to point out that the truth of the matter is, based on the research, that married couples uh, have the best sex life of anyone in America, the study shows. And what the study show is, if the couple is spiritual or religious, it is even better. I hope you all getting this. If you can commit to Christ from now, you will have more happiness later on. And the church has an obligation to talk about pornography. Because there are people in church struggling with it. We have an obligation to point out that it is an addiction. And that if it's an addiction, God can give you victory over it. Look at number six. The church feels 
unfriendly to those who struggle with doubts. One of the things, that's why I preached that sermon yesterday, what to do with doubt. You take your doubt and you bring your doubt to Jesus. But why is this happening? Spirit of Prophecy, Evangelism, page 593, Ellen White points it out. She says, science so-called and religion will be placed in opposition to each other because finite men do not comprehend the power and greatness of God. These words of Holy Writ were presented to me. Of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. This will surely be seen among the people of God. Did you guys get that? The devil in the last days is actually going to use science, so-called, against the people of God. Look at this. This is from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6. As trials sticking around us, both separation and unity will be seen in our ranks. Some who are now ready to take up weapons of warfare will in times of real peril make it manifest that they have, no, not, they have not built upon the solid rock. They will yield to temptation. Those who, those who have had great light and precious privileges but have not improved them will under one pretext or another go out from us. Let me tell you something, young people. I said it to the business uh, class I talked to, to talk to today. If you have come to this institution and you travel four years through it or however long it takes you to finish your degree and you leave without a real relationship with Jesus Christ, you missed the most valuable aspect of this institution. Why? Because there's other institutions. Now look at what Sister White says. The word of God is compared, it's from Christ Object Lesson, page 41. The word of God is compared with the supposed teachings of science and is made to appear, uh, uh, and is made to appear uncertain and tr untrustworthy. Thus the seeds of doubt are planted in the minds of the youth. And in a time of temptation, they sprang up. They spring up. When faith in God's word is lost, the soul has no guide, no safeguard. The youth are drawn into paths which lead away from God and from everlasting life. Once you begin to doubt and distrust God's word, you're in trouble. This is what she goes on to say. She says, to this cause uh, may, may in great degree be attributed the widespread iniquity in our world today. When the word of God is set aside, the power to restrain the evil passions of the natural heart is rejected. Men sow to the flesh, and of the flesh they reap corruption. The younger brother, the prodigal son, he, he was sowing to the flesh. How did he do that? Well, let me, I didn't talk about alcohol last night when we talked about addiction. But I did mention yesterday afternoon in an earlier service that in Jamaica, between 13 and 19-year-old boys, that there's a significant um, uh, number who are already having problems with how much alcohol they consume. Alcohol is one of the ways the devil gets you. The Bible actually makes it clear. I want to make this clear for all everyone listening that the Bible forbids the consumption of alcohol. Watch this. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 says this. Wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereof is not wise. Right? So that's, that's one of the texts. The text that really points to what the Bible teaches on alcohol is Proverbs 23 and verse 31. We're talking about the prodigal being in the far country now. Proverbs 23, 31 says, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it gives its color in the cup, when it moves itself aright. At the last it does what? 
It bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. In fact, the, the Bible goes on to say, you will see, you will see strange women. And the, what the Bible is saying is, under the influence of alcohol, that chemical GABA I mentioned last night, the neurotransmitter that helps you stay inhibited, is turned off with marijuana and with alcohol. So when someone is drunk, you could be looking like, at someone who looks like, the, the, that looks, looks really not so attractive. But after a few drinks, that brother starts looking like Denzel Washington. And it works in the same way for men. I have an uncle, and, and Jamaicans drink um, white rum. White rum is pretty powerful stuff, I found out. I, I think you could solve the energy crisis if we started to use it for fuel instead of consumption. White rum is strong. And this uncle of mine, he's a Christian now, he was telling me the story how he went to a party and they were playing dominoes. And he got drunk on the white rum to the point where he blacked out. He couldn't remember what happened. My uncle says the next morning he woke up in a house he did not know, in a bed he did not know. He, was, he had no clothes on and he was lying next to a woman he did not know. He said, Ricky, that's what they call me, Ricky, I roll over and when I look at the woman, it was the ugliest woman I had ever seen in my entire life. My uncle said he was running down the street putting on his clothes. He's a Christian now. What the Bible is describing in Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 31 is the process of fermentation, science majors. The Bible is saying that wine does not stay the way it is. And I, want to, I want to get this for you because some of you believe a little wine for the stomach's sake, as Paul says, or Jesus turned the, the water into wine. Jesus would not have gone against the scripture. The Bible says here that when it turns itself aright, stop, don't even look at it. Once it's fermented, alcohol is a carcinogen. It causes cancer. It is toxic. The World Health Organization has come out and said there is literally no safe amount for of alcohol. They were telling everybody in America, drink a glass of wine every night for your health. Now they had to backtrack because they found if women drink that one drink a, a, a night, it actually significantly increases their risk of breast cancer. But let me tell you something, the riotous living in the far country is awash with alcohol. Some of you have been raised to know better. Get caught up in this stuff. Look at what the Bible says. This is Hosea chapter 4 and verse 11. It says this, whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. And so what happens is when you start to drink alcohol, your, 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 your inhibitions drop. Your sexual encounters increase. You make poor decisions around relationships and sex. And the Bible says that this combination will take away your heart or take away your mind. It will erode and destroy your frontal lobe where the seal of the living God is supposed to go. It goes hand in hand. Let me tell you something. Young ladies, that's why when you, if you go out to a club, uh, one of the first dudes going to want to do, they want to buy you a drink. Because they want to disinhibit you. And if you, uh, the average woman drinks the same amount of alcohol as the average man because of, a, of an enzyme in the liver, um, alcohol dehydrogenase, because the men have more of that, of that enzyme, the man is going to be in his, right, in his sensibilities longer than the average woman. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some women that outdrink a man. But in general, he's trying to get an advantage, ladies. 
That's why he's buying you that drink. Here's what the, the SDA Bible commentary says on Hosea 4 and verse 11. It says this, whoredom and wine. These vices are, pertin are pertinently put together to show their force in depriving man of his true and proper affections, his reason and his understanding. Take away the heart. The heart is used here to represent the mind, the understanding, the affections. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Look at this. This is critical for those of you who want to serve God. If a person's mind, understanding, and affections are vitiated and corrupted by lustful excesses, he sacrifices his possibilities for service for God. Satan is trying to make it so that you are incapacitated to serve God. He wants to make you leave your father's house and go into the far country where you are of no effect for the kingdom of God. Luke 15 and verse 14 says this. The prodigal son, as he's out there, he's, he's spending his money in riotous living. Then verse 14 happens. And when he had spent all, you know the devil waits until you're at your weakest point. When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the feeds, fields to feed swine. And look at this. And, when, and, and, and he would have fain have filled his belly with the husks that the, the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Now, he had a whole crew going into the club every night during his riotous days. He had a whole bunch of friends. Everybody was on his side. But when he ran out of money, he found out real quick who his friends were. He found out he never had any. They say in Jamaica, if you lay with dog, you rise with fleas. He was laying with dogs the whole time and thought they were his friends. I warn you, young people, be careful the company you keep. Even on this campus, if someone is influencing you away from God, you need to disconnect from that person because the enemy will plant people in your life to lead you away from Christ. Spirit of Prophecy says this. Sitting upon the ground in that desolate and famine-stricken land with no companions but the swine. He is fain to fill himself with the husks on which the beasts are fed. Of the gay companions who flocked about him in his prosperous days and ate and drank at his expense, there's none, no, not one left to befriend him. Where now is his riotous joy? Stilling his conscience, benumbing his sensibilities. He thought himself happy, but now, with money spent, with hunger unsatisfied, with pride humble, with his moral nature dwarfed, with his will weak and untrustworthy, with his finer feelings seemingly dead, he is the most wretched of all mortals. Sin promises you what it cannot deliver. You see, the wages of sin, the cost of sin, the check that sin pays you, that is death. If you labor for sin, you will bring home death. Here he is all alone. And let me tell you something. Some of you probably are feeling like this right now. Feeling all alone. Proverbs 5.22 says it like this. His own iniquity shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his what? The cords of his sins. What is doing that today? Well, I want to submit to you, young people, that you live in a time where everybody thinks 
They're better than everybody else. Everybody wants all kinds of pride. You got pride in the gay pride. You see brown pride, black pride, white pride. In America, it is, everyone is being fractionalized. There's a great book, How Civil Wars Begin. And in this book, the, the author lays out historically how every time there's a terrible civil war, what actually happens is they begin to pit people against each other. That's how they control. I want to submit to you that the devil wants you to believe that what you are, what you want to behave like, what you are doing is what is, is, is who you are. And that you should be proud of that thing. But this is what the Bible says. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. And a hearty spirit before a fall. Better is it to be a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Can you imagine what it would have been like for this Jewish boy? Jesus telling this parable. Some say Jesus tells this story because it, it, some semblance of it really happened. Can you imagine him in the pig's pen? He's not even supposed to touch a pig. Here he is feeding the pig, eating the pig's food. He's, he's sitting there and he's thinking about what life was like back at his father's house. And he's so messed up, wishing he was back home. He's wishing he had never made the mistake of leaving his house. He wishes he had never dishonored his father by asking for his inheritance. He's sitting there at, at night after night in the cold, in the rain, as he's unprotected from the elements. And as he's the servant of a man who could care less about him. Bible says something powerful happens. Luke 15 and verse 17 says, and when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread and enough to eat, enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He believed in the pig pen that in order for him to be reestablished or re accepted again by his father, the only way that could happen is if he went back as a servant. Spirit of prophecy says this. The son determines to confess his guilt. He will go to his father saying, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But he adds showing how stinted is his conception of his father's love. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Some of us don't understand God's character. God is not looking to bring you home as a servant. He's looking to bring you home as a son. And if you don't get that about God, you will always hesitate in coming back to him. Watch this. This is what she goes on to say. The young man turns from the swine herds and the husks and sets his, sets his face toward home, trembling with weakness and faint from hunger. He presses eagerly on his way. He has no covering to conceal his rags, but his misery has conquered pride. And he hurries on to beg a servant's place where he was once a child. Can you imagine that journey home? You know how he must have smelled? Dealing with the pigs in the pig pen, feeding the pigs. He had no money to buy new clothes. He was in the same clothes all the time. He would walk, he was walking back in tattered clothing, smelly, dirty, the stench of the pigs still on him, walking 
past the cities that he once uh, went in the other direction, rich with his father's inheritance, ready to live la vida loca, ready to be a party animal. And now with nothing in his pocket, he's walking in the other direction, destitute and hoping his father will just make him a servant. But in Luke chapter 15 and verse 20, Scripture says this, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was a yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. He was coming back, walking home. He didn't realize that the entire time he was gone, his father was leaning over the banister of the house, looking to see where his son was. As he is walking a walk of shame back towards his house, his father sees him. His father doesn't take his time. He jumps off the veranda of the house and begins to run down the path back towards his son. My Bible tells me he had compassion and ran, fell on his neck, and he what? Kissed him. Ellen White says this. She says, little did the gay, thoughtless youth, as he went out from his father's gate, dream the ache and longing left in that father's heart. When he danced and feasted with his, old, with his wild companions, little did he think of the shadow that had fallen on his home. And now, as with weary and painful steps, he pursues the homeward way. He knows not that one is watching for his return. Some of you don't realize the pain you may be causing home. But ah, even greater is the pain all of us cause at times, our heavenly home. He says, but while he is yet a great way off, the Father discerns his form Love is quick of sight. Not even the degradation of the years of sin can conceal the son from the father's eyes. He had compassion and ran and fell on his neck in a long, clinging, tender embrace. I want to submit to you young people, no matter how far from God you've gone, he's always waiting for you to come home. No matter how... <laughs> No matter how deep in sin you've been, no matter how many mistakes you've made, no matter how dark your past, you have not outsinned God's ability to save you. Skip some of these. I wish I could share all of these quotes with you, but I, I'm going to have to skip forward. I, I'll read this one, though. It says, do not listen to the enemy's suggestion to stay away from Christ until you have made yourself better, until you are good enough to come to God. If you wait until then, you will never come. When Satan points to your filthy garments, repeat the promise of Jesus. He that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Tell the enemy that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Make the prayer of David your own Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. I love the way the story ends. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, 
and am no more worthy to be called thy son. This was a true statement. When you sin, you don't sin against the person you sin against. You sin first against God. And he was no longer worthy to be called the son. But look at this. Before he can utter the words out of his mouth, make me as one of your hired servants, the father stops him. The father does not let him get that last part out of his mouth. He says, to his, the father says to his servants instead, bring forth the best robe and put on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. This all has meaning. You see the robe, the best robe in the house belonged to the father. When the father said, bring my best robe, what he was really saying to the, young man, to, the, to the servants and is telling us is that it was the father's cleanliness, the father's righteousness that would cover the filth that the son's clothing and body projected. When you come to Jesus, it is the righteousness of Christ that will cover you. He said, put a ring on his hand. That was a signet ring, the stamp that said he was a member of the family. Instantly, he was not made a servant. He was, made, he was restored to his position of son. Shoes on his feet because only the servants walked around barefoot. He said, kill the fatted calf. I want you to remember that whenever sin happens, something has to die. Jesus sacrificed for us. He died for us that we might live. And I can't go through all of these. I, I wish I could. There's so many good things I want to give you here, but let me jump to the end. Luke 15, 22 and verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Bible says, and they began to be merry. There is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who comes home. Over just one sinner who comes home. I'm going to close with this story. My, my cousin, um, you guys, we talk, in Jamaica, you guys talk about Sean Taylor, but I had a cousin who, who was actually just as famous in the United States for sports. Um, he grew up in the church with us. He was in the choir, was in Pathfinders. Um, and when he, was, when he was young, his parents were Adventists, but when he was young, his father, who was the chief of police for one of the cities in South Florida, found, realized that he had a super gift for playing football, and I mean American football. He was like, even when he was just a little boy playing a Pop Warner League, he was like a man among boys. He, he, he would play both ways, Iron Man, offense and defense. Time for high school, the private schools recruited him. He actually played for the high school that um, Madonna's kids went to, the singer Madonna, Gulliver Prep. And he won Gulliver Prep, their first ever high school, uh, statewide high school football championship. Every college in America wanted to sign him. Everybody wanted to sign him. And he decided to go to the University of Miami in Florida. And the first year they were, he was there, he won the national championship in football for college. When he went, time for him to go to, to the pros, 
He was highly sought after. In fact, in the NFL, there's a thing called a draft. He went number five in the NFL draft. One, two, three, four, five. He signed, this, this kid who grew up Seventh-day Adventist, he signed a $36 million contract to play for the Washington Redskins, now the Washington Commanders. $36 million. Let me tell you something. Even some of my most faithful Adventist people in our family lost their minds. But when you're a prodigal, even when everything goes right, you can't run from the pig pen. Because, he, you know, he would, I saw him sometimes high with weed. I knew some of the other stuff that he might do. He, he had a bit of a temper. Someone stole his four-wheelers, and he went with his gun down to where they were in our old hood neighborhood and got his four-wheelers back. And, of course, these tough boys that stole it called the police violating all kind of ghetto codes, but he did it. They did it. And because he was the rich, famous one, he got in trouble and had to go to court. It was the prayers of my grandmother who raised all of us. My grandmother, the one from Bethletown here in, in Westmoreland, she's the one who prayed, and he was able to get out of his legal trouble, but he had to give up all of his guns. He wound up giving up his dogs, all kinds of stuff. After that incident, that summer, I saw him in between football seasons. And he was going, he, and I saw him at one of our cousin's um, baby um, shower um, thing that they had at their house. And my cousin Sean said to me, Ricky, when I can, I'm coming out of this football thing, and I think I'm going to go back to church. That summer, he actually came down when an appeal was made at our old church we grew up in in Miami. That season, he went back to play football, and he was having his best season ever. Interceptions, tackles, he was just doing a phenomenal job. But then he hurt his knee. And so, because he hurt his knee, he wasn't playing. They went to play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Tampa Bay, Florida. And instead of staying with the team, he came back to Miami because he had a boat and a car and a house he wanted to check on and family. While he was at home, somebody who had seen the inside of his house before broke in through the back um, window of the back bathroom on his house, a big house. And the guy, one of the guys had a gun. When they broke into the house, Sean was in the room with his girlfriend and their baby. And he couldn't have any more guns, so he came out with a machete. Yeah, so, he, you know, you got Jamaican blood, right? He came out with a machete. And um, when he came out, the guy with the gun saw him and shot. I don't know that he meant to hit him or what he was trying to do, but he shot, and it went through Sean's left leg. And normally you would say, that's good. It went through his leg. He'd survive, except that the bullet penetrated his femoral artery, the largest artery in the lower extremity, and my cousin began to bleed out. His father told me later on that he thinks he left all of his blood on the floor of the house. His girlfriend couldn't come out to call 911 or help him for fear that the gunman would turn on her and the baby. And so she waited, and by the time she was able to felt safe to come out, he was laying there in a pool of blood. She called 911, the ambulance came, they airlifted him to Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami to the Ryder Trauma Center where I did my trauma training. And he was there. And my grandmother, Olga Clark, she left from Homestead and went all the way downtown Miami to sit at his bedside. He had the surgery. 
they actually gave him $60,000 worth of albumin. The nursing students might know what, what, why they would do that. To try and keep fluid in his blood vessels because he had lost so much blood that when they tried to give him fluids, he was third spacing, so he'd swell up. My grandmother sat there and she prayed. My brother David tried to tell my grandmother to go back home, to shower and come back. My grandmother sat there and she sang in his ears the song she sang to him when he was a child. She read in his ears the Bible verses she taught him when he was a child. She, she sat there and she, and she ministered to him round the clock. A few days later, my grandmother was now CNN and ESPN, all of the big TV stations are outside the hospital. My grandmother's getting tired, and, she, and, and as she's still in there with him, ministering to him on his deathbed, basically, the doctor and the nurse walk into the room. And the doctor says to my cousin Sean, as the nurse goes over and puts her hand in his hand, Sean, if you can hear me, squeeze her hand. And he squeezes the nurse's hand. He says, Sean, if you can hear me, blink your eye. And Sean blinks his eyes. The doctor looks at the nurse. The nurse looks at the doctor. The doctor shrugs his shoulder and walks out of the room. When they leave, my brother David is in there with my grandmother. When they leave, um, my grandmother says to David, listen, take me home. I'm ready to shower now. And my brother says, but wait a minute. You know, stuff is happening now. You sure you want to? She said, no, take me home. I want to shower. She, she, she goes home and she showers, and, they, and, and the news now, CNN, ESPN, they start announcing Sean Taylor looks like he might respond, looks like he's doing better. The doctors makes a pronouncement. Within 24 or 48 hours, he died. I jumped on a plane for his funeral from Los Angeles to Miami, and when I get to Miami, I make a beeline for my grandmother. I say, Mama, why is it? That it seemed like a miracle was about to happen, but right then, you walked away. My grandmother said, I was getting tired, Ricky. I began to pray and ask God. I said, Lord, I've been whispering in his ear. I've been singing in his ear. And she said, I need to know if he is, if he is listening, if he can hear what I'm telling him. She said when she made that prayer to God to show her if he can hear her, the doctor and the nurse walked in. She said once I knew that he had heard the gospel for the last time, she realized it was time for her to go get ready for his funeral. Let me tell you something. I went to the funeral. I participated in the funeral. I spoke at one of the funeral uh, things. I, I saw O.J. Simpson and all of the NFL. I saw. I met. I saw. I sat behind Ocho Cinco and 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 and, and um, Sean's agent, the famous agent he had. I saw the, the the head of the Redskins, the coach, the owners. All those people were there at the funeral. But guess what? When it came time to bury my cousin, not many people were. Not as nearly as many people were there when that coffin went into the grave. More importantly, his BMW, his big fishing boat, his mansion, jewelry, none of that went with him. There was no U-Haul behind, behind the funeral procession bringing his stuff with him. He left all of it here. And the only hope we have for Sean Taylor is this, that in that last moment, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Because if, if he missed that, 
all that $36 million meant nothing because somebody else is going to spend it. Let me tell you something. While you can come out of the pig pen, come out of the far country, while you have opportunity to return to your father, do not wait for tragedy. Come to Jesus now. As my wife sings, anybody wants to come down front again for special prayer, you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, meet me down front. As she sings, just move from where you are and join me down front. If you have to leave, please be quiet as you do so. It's a serious, sacred time. Move from where you are and come down front. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.